sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about protests happening inside Panama. Also going to be discussing the joint declaration between U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid and the connection between Zionism and imperialism. Also going to be marking the anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua and how the reality on the ground just does not square with media misrepresentations. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. And to kick things off today, we are very happy to be be joined by Libre X Sankara, a poet, cultural worker, educator, and organizer with the Troika Collective. Libre, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to be on with you all. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Libre. And for a little over two weeks now, there have been serious mobilizations and strikes inside uh, the country of Panama around uh, a number of issues uh, uh, facing the people there. And, you know, these mobilizations, these protests have been facing some pretty serious repression by the police. Uh, Also, we see the government of uh, President Laurentino Cortizo attempting to, you know, divide and and fragment the movement. And reportedly, uh, there's at least uh, some measure of negotiations going on by the, I believe it's being led by the People United for Life Alliance. But even with that, protests continue. And so to begin, Lee Bray, I was hoping you could help contextualize this whole situation. What has driven the people of Panama into the streets? And uh, how do you sort of see it connected to, you know, broader issues happening within the country? 100%. So I had the opportunity to actually go um, the first week of the national strike and, and meet with comrades that are part of um, the one of the largest sindicatos um, that are helping to kind of guide efforts. But just to give folks a little bit of context um, as to why this national strike is happening. Um, so this national strike is happening And what led to it was really neoliberal policies. So for over 40 years, there have been neoliberal policies that have not been meeting the the needs of working class Panamanians. Um, Unfortunately, Panama, like many countries in Central America, doesn't get the the same global platform um, or coverage as other countries. And so um, for the most part, uh, people don't even know that there's a national strike happening in Panama, and much less getting accurate information. So there have been over 40 years of neoliberal policies, but specifically under the Cortizo government that has been in power for um, for about three years, there has been uh, a growing debt and the burden is being put uh, onto working class Panamanians who have not seen an increase in wages. Um, and as we all know, Uh, there is still uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And if the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the working class here in the U.S., we can only we can only imagine that it would it would be even worse and have uh, worse effects um, into other parts of the world that rely on the U.S. um, and that have very close ties. So um, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to increased rates of Um, of unemployment, 
and inaccessibility to um, to everyday resources that should be made accessible to all. So a lot of the demands um, being made are no different than the demands of uh, of a lot of the national strikes that have been taking place. For example, um, in, in recently in Ecuador, the people of Panama are asking for a, uh, a freeze on gas prices um, so that people can have, uh, can afford transportation, um, public as well as private. Um, people are asking for the cost of food to be capped so that they can actually afford to feed themselves. And people are asking for medicine to be made accessible. All these things are either overpriced or not accessible, as in they're not getting into the country because the government is choosing to invest in, uh, say, new buildings and infrastructure for businesses. So people are, are fed up with a lot of the lies um, of this neoliberal government, um, but also uh, kind of seeing that their government is choosing to invest in specific things while saying there are no access to funds, right? So the Cortizo government is in the process of, of uh, renovating banks and renovating buildings in downtown while also saying they're not able to cap the price of gas at $3, which is, uh, which is one of the demands of the people. So it's kind of this, this contradiction where you say there's no resources but people can visually see that things are being invested in using public funds. Yeah. And, you know, I, I appreciate you breaking that down, uh, Libre. And, you know, it seems like uh, Panama is a country that we often don't hear a lot about in the United States. I mean, of course, it's uh, situated between uh, Costa Rica and Colombia. Uh, quite naturally, uh, uh, some years back was the subject to a regime change operation that saw the overthrow of uh, uh, Manuel Noriega and things like this. And so I'm wondering, how do you situate the situation in Panama with these obviously sort of stark economic conditions that has put a lot of pressure on the struggling people of that country. How do you situate that within perhaps some uh, broader trends that we see uh, uh, throughout Central America and perhaps throughout Latin America in general? Well, I think having historical context is is really important. One of the one of the very interesting things about Panama and its relationship to the U.S. is it's one that is is quite recent. The U.S. invaded um, in the 80s. Um, you can you can talk to literally. I was talking with taxi drivers about the invasion, like taxi drivers that that lived through um, that time period. And you know, again, no one's really paying attention to what's what's happening in Panama. Um, but when you talk to Panamanians and, and you understand the history, you're like, wait, why, why did this not make news? Like literally the U.S. killing students that were protesting the U.S. military base um, fighting for education. And so there's, there's a rich history of, um, of anti-imperialist movement, anti-U.S. sentiment uh, in Panama, but also in Central America as a whole, understanding that um, from the Cold War time period on, the U.S. has um, has led a lot of massacres um, and invested in dictatorships throughout Central America, um, because Central America, uh, in terms of mineral resources, uh, benefits the U.S. market. Right? If you if you go to your market and you look at 
where a lot of our bananas um, and uh, a lot of our other produce is coming from outside of Mexico, most of it's going to be coming from Central America. And so there are strategic business relationships that have been kind of cemented in throughout Central America, where we also see um, a correlation with with coups um, led and funded by the U.S. government um, and massacres of indigenous people. So even when we're talking about Panama specifically, a lot of the what is happening now is the result of people in Colón or Chiriquí, which are regions which are two of the poorest regions in Panama that said that said we're tired like we not only can we not afford to live we can't afford medical we can't afford medical attention we can't afford food we can't afford uh to continue putting gas into our tanks but we need to systematically change things because we as panamanians can no longer afford to to live in our own country but we also can't go anywhere else and so you see a lot of um a lot of pent-up uh emotions and anger uh, that has been the result of decades and decades of abuse, not only of Panamanians, but Central Americans as a whole. Uh, and we do see this very interesting trend where um, throughout Central America, there, there, are being, there are more conversations around um, how do we move away from neoliberal policies and move towards um, an alternate solution. And oftentimes, what we can see is there's a trend and an in, and a growing interest in uh, socialism as an alternative. Looking at countries like Nicaragua that have essentially been able um, to address systematic issues of working class people through the socialist project of um, the Sandinista, um, the Sandinista Front for the Libera- um, for National Liberation, the FSLN, um, and so. There, people, people are so frustrated and have lived under neoliberalism for so long that they're looking for an alternative. And so we see, um, we see questioning, um, and we see um, heavy, un- uh, heavy unionization um, of working class people towards addressing the neoliberal governments uh, that have historically abused working class people. Yeah, and on that note, Libre, uh, I was looking at a quote by uh, Saul Mendez, uh, General Secretary of the Single Union of Construction Workers in Panama. And he said, quote, the people are not in the streets only because of the price of fuel, but also because of the price of medicines, electricity, food. And to change this model of oppression that exploits the Panamanian people, this neoliberal economic model. And as you say, I mean, this is something that has just positively ravaged uh, the region. I mean, in Honduras and so many other places. And oh, by the way, the same neoliberal economic model is also uh, impacting us inside the United States right now. And so it's like you say, this uh, uh, political and historical context is so important. And even though it's important, it's something that I think is often missed by the rank and file person in the United States, you know, basically because the institutions of knowledge production in this country simply 
gloss over that because there there has to be this uh, this 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 promotion or or this develop of this feeling that whatever the U.S. does, whether it's in uh, Panama or Cuba or Venezuela or Ecuador and what have you, and in terms of just you know outright violating uh, the sovereignty of these countries, despite its pronouncements of being you know champions of democracy or whatever, well then the reality of things I think becomes that much more clear. And so for the social movements, the anti-imperialist movements and uh, progressive people who are taking note of this, uh, Lee Brain, I think more people should be paying attention to uh, what's happening in Panama. I mean, I'm reminded of, you know, not that long ago, there were these massive uh, uh, demonstrations in Haiti uh, calling for, you know, the removal of Jovenel Moise of, uh, of, uh, as president that also went completely ignored by most uh, uh, mainstream outlets and things like this. I mean, the people are on the move in Panama and all over the region. And so how do you think, uh, you know, the anti-imperialist movement inside the U.S. and inside the West should be orienting towards these things and sort of paying attention as uh, uh, things continue to develop? I think there's a lot to observe. And, and I actually really appreciate this question because it's something that um, that I've been sitting with and observing um, and getting a lot more context um, context on. When we're talking about um, just just for folks to have even further context, um, specifically in Panama, like um, like this leader had shared, they're part of Suntrax, which is um, the construction union, um, one of the strongest unions in in Panama that has been doing great work um, for decades. Uh, Panama is a place where, um, when we're talking about Central America and Latin America in general, um, inflation rates in Panama have gone up almost forty seven percent. And if you can imagine, if you couldn't already afford living, um, uh, the cost of living in Panama, a 47% uh, inflation rate increase over a period of three years is absolutely ridiculous. And so when we're talking about these mass movements, when we're talking about these popular movements, um, and we're here in Turtle Island, I think it's important for us to understand that we can learn from other places. We're not, uh, I think, the working class left, uh, if we if we want to make a critique, right, oftentimes uh, wants to to critique uh, the left movements that are happening in other places like uh, Colombia, like Peru, like Nicaragua, right? We're always critiquing as if we have something to offer, but the reality is that the left, um, the working class people in Turtle Island, have not unified to address our primary contradiction against imperialism and what we can learn from movements like Panama, like Ecuador, like Colombia, is that the left has to unify, not because we ideologically agree, but because our class position, our class position as working class people against capitalism needs to be the unifying factor so that we can begin to address the contradiction of having a government that doesn't represent our best interest that also is investing more in war and U.S. intervention in other countries and stop being so hardline about these ideological utopic views of what the left countries should be doing. Oh, China should do this. Guess what? China fought for a revolution and now their, their government is working in the interests of working class people. And other countries have done the same thing. Colombia just had a victory of of electing its first left government um, in 214 years. Now, is that a socialist government? No, 
but now they're in a position where they move to the left and they can begin to work on projects that benefit the working class and that working class can continue to organize and move in the direction and the interests of those of those people in that country that's something that we have yet to do that we need to that we need to be observing from Colombia right this idea that that we're always going to be telling people how to do things or that we need to be ideologically pure it it doesn't work in practice like theory we need to move theory into action and address the issues of working class people here right uh rent rates are going up gas prices are going up uh they just took away um a guarantee to abortion rights and you know they're going to start attacking lgbtq so we have to begin to address our issues in our countries because guess what in in our country and that benefits us as working class people here in this country but by default it benefits all countries that the US is is intervening in and so when we address our primary contradiction here in the belly of the beast we're able to help um our working class people in Panama and that's our that's part of our solidarity work with people in Panama and um all throughout the global south that are fighting against imperialism. Couldn't agree more. Well, we thank you so much, Libre, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the recent joint declaration signed by the governments of the United States and Israel and what this means for Palestine. And we are very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Joe Catrone, U.S. coordinator of the Samidun Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and it's great to have you, Joe. Of course, recently, U.S. President Joe Biden traveled to Israel as a a part of his uh, Middle East tour, if you will. And uh, in Israel, he met with Prime Minister Yair Lapid and they signed the Jerusalem Declaration, which was kind of a, you know, a strategic partnership type of document and things like that. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, in a speech sort of uh, extolled the virtues of of Zionism and sort of uh, reifying uh, the U.S.'s commitment to supporting Israel um, as it does every year to the tune of three and four billion dollars. And, you know, Joe, it's my understanding that uh, the Biden Lapid declaration doesn't contain a whole lot that is new, but in in substance, it sort of uh, further strengthens this connection and relationship between Zionism and imperialism. So to begin, I'll so when you could sort of break down, you know, just what's in this Jerusalem Declaration and how do you see it as relating to the ongoing struggle of, uh, uh, you know, this uh, uh, genocidal Zionist campaign against the Palestinian people? Well, I think you're exactly right that very little in this document is actually new. It's largely a reiteration of things that have been said before, leaning heavily into maintaining Israel's quality 
quantitative military edge against its rivals in the region and the people it's subjugating, as well as the United States' shared interests or sh- and shared values, as they put it, with the Israeli state. Uh, this is all pretty boilerplate stuff. Most of it you or I could have patched together from previous statements that have been made. The striking things about it, I think, are, first of all, where it was signed in Jerusalem, because, as we all remember, Jerusalem was never recognized by the United States as the supposed Israeli capital or even Israeli territory until the presidency of Donald Trump, who was the first to recognize it as such. And Joe Biden is, I believe, only the second U.S. president after Trump to travel there under U.S. auspices, excuse me, under Israeli auspices, along with the praise in this document for the normalization agreements reached between the Israeli state and various reactionary Arab regimes, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco. Biden is making very clear his intention of following in his predecessor's path, not only when it comes to an ultimate goal of subjugating the people of the region in U.S. interests, but even when it comes to a strategy of forcing normalization with the Israeli state against the interests of these state of these countries' own populations. So essentially what we're looking at here is a reiteration of the ongoing U.S.-Israeli war against the Palestinian people, as well as the broader forces of resistance in the region on terms previously defined by Donald Trump. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned this issue of uh, shared values and shared interests. This is language that we see um, inside this declaration. And, of course, they're putting this forth as, you know, a a, a virtuous thing. I mean, within the document itself, it talks about how, you know, both countries, you know, uh, you know, care so much about the the, the rule of law, commitment to democracy and uh, the calling of uh, repairing the world and things like this. But what are the real uh, shared? values and interests between uh, the U.S. and uh, Israel that, you know, makes their their relationship um, sort of, you know, necessary, both for Zionism and imperialism? Well, Biden sort of gave the game away on this in the U.S. Senate when he once said that if there were no Israel, the U.S. would have to invent an Israel to protect its interests in the region. And looking at this document with with its aggressive statements against Iran, I think it's very clear that the United States sees Israel as a bulwark to advance its interests against people who seek to live outside of its control against societies and states that want to chart their own path forward in history. The United States and Israel are working hand in glove to prevent this and to force all the people of the region into either direct subjugation to U.S. interests or to misery and poverty, as in the case of societies that are being heavily sanctioned, such as Iran. Yeah, and, you know, uh, you all at Sami Dune put out uh, a really good statement about this, Joe. And there was a part of it that struck me within the context of uh, uh, shared values and interests, because you all said that, quote, these are the shared values of 
the U.S. ruling class, the shared values of colonialism, domination and exploitation of the land, wealth, resources and people of the world for the benefit of the few. And I quite agree with that. And uh, I was wondering if you could sort of break down a little more like, like the class character of this, because I feel like that's kind of a point that that is often missed as, you know, uh, uh, Israel is kind of upheld, you know, as the only democracy in the region and this entity that has to be uh, uh, protected at all costs. And even the slightest criticism is bigotry and all these sorts of things. But what does the class character of Zionism and the U.S. relationship to it really reveal about its uh, actual intentions? I think it's very clear that when Biden and nearly every other U.S. politician speak of these shared interests, they're talking about a particular set of bourgeois interests, of ruling class interests, of the economic interests of people who profit from everything, from resource extraction, from petroleum and natural gas in the region, to weapon sales by defense manufacturers. They're not speaking about the vast majority of us. We know this. We're not getting anything out of this deal. Biden is doing what U.S. presidents always do, seeking to make the rich richer. And he's deploying every force he can find from the Israeli state to these various Arab reactionary regimes, which he's trying to pull together with it in what some are calling an Arab NATO, to oppose everyone who wants to avoid this fate, who doesn't want their destiny and their resources and their freedoms to be controlled directly from Washington, D.C., which is not only the Biden plan, but the bipartisan U.S. ruling class plan for the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, another thing that always seems to come up, you know, when uh, it comes to the U.S. in Israel is this this notion of, uh, quote unquote, self-defense and this idea that Israel has a, a right to self-defense. When in reality, of course, all they're defending is uh, uh, their ability to continue to expand and to continue to displace, uh, brutalize, uh, harass, discriminate against and, and outright kill uh, the Palestinian people and other groups uh, within what is currently Israel today. Uh, you know what I mean? And it just feels like there's a whole, there's like a propaganda campaign uh, of sorts that has been going on in terms of Israel for a while, where a lot of the historical and political context of how Israel actually came about is just completely obscured. And in instead, we're, you know, fed this kind of a mythical tale about what Israel is and the Palestinian people who are actually uh, defending themselves and have been for years at this point against the imposition and expansion of uh, uh, Zionist settlers, they are portrayed to us as, you know, terrorists. There's like this, you know, a, a completely uh, a racist way that uh, the Palestinians are portrayed uh, to the U.S. and the West as terroristic, as unreasonable. There are people who even blame the Palestinians for the state of things in Israel uh, right now. And so, Joe, why do you think it's it's necessary for these narratives to really be propagated and uh, uh, promoted in order to, I mean, frankly, cover up the crimes of Israel? Well, I always tell people that Palestine is honestly one of the easiest, simplest political situations in the world to understand. And if it seems complicated, that's probably because someone has 
unnecessarily complicated it for their own interests. And this has a lot to do with the various narratives you're talking about, Israel's supposed right to self-defense, Israel's supposed right to exist. We know that Israel, the Israeli state, is built entirely on ethnically cleansed Palestinian land, land where Palestinians were living less than a century ago until they were driven out at gunpoint and in some cases massacred by Zionist militias and later the military of the Israeli state itself. And of course, most normal people faced with these circumstances would agree that the Palestinian people have the right to defend themselves, to reclaim what's theirs by every reasonable standard. And this is the reason that we see the effort you're talking about to muddy the waters, to make it more confusing, to make it complicated. It's complicated, we hear. Well, it's not complicated. It's actually very simple. And everyone who portrays it as something else probably is working on some kind of agenda, either their own or someone else's. Yeah, I tend to agree. And and I want to touch on, Joe, how this is uh, represented in real time here in the United States, because, you know, uh, uh, a big issue lately and really over the last few years has been um, increasing attacks on the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, the the BDS movement that uh, uh, targets Israel for these very crimes that we're describing. Now, BDS, it's not an armed struggle. It's it's not a, a riot. It's not violent in any way. And yet not only is it attacked by Israel, but it's also attacked here in the U.S. through uh, different laws and and things like this. And so how does the uh, anti-BDS campaign show up uh, in the U.S.? And and why is that important in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and Israel? Well, the campaign against BDS in particular, and also more broadly against Palestine solidarity here, manifests itself in a number of ways, from laws that have been passed at the state level, penalizing boycotts of Israel and divestment from companies that are complicit in its crimes, to various media campaigns against organizations like Samadun, for example, that are involved in these efforts and other attempts to support the liberation of Palestine as best as we can. This is once again, um, a result of ruling class interests of certain people who have, who see their well-being as tied up with particularly U.S. foreign policy and U.S. interests in the Middle East, having dedicated themselves to doing whatever they can to keep the status quo going, because it's not really the most obvious status quo. And a lot of people, when faced with it directly, don't understand why it should continue. It's difficult even for many supposed supporters of Israel to explain. If you ask a Republican, why are we going into debt to pay for Israel's military budget instead of them doing that? They're going to struggle to respond. I mean, it really is a ridiculous scenario in a lot of ways. So the ultimate goal here is to prevent people from asking questions that really don't have very many obvious answers. 
Yeah, and, you know, I was just thinking as you were saying that, uh, uh, Joe, because we were discussing sort of the media misrepresentations uh, around Israel and Palestine and how that impacts people's consciousness around the issue. And I think a direct consequence of that is the sort of uh, invisibilizing, if you will, of uh, the real issues that are facing uh, the Palestinian people at this moment. I mean, we're talking about a a 75-year process of this uh, displacement and violence that uh, uh, I was mentioning earlier. And I think particularly around the issue of land. I mean, what are some of the most pressing problems at this moment that uh, uh, Palestinian people are really faced up against? I mean, this is a daily experience for them, I feel like I I should say. But just the sort of seemingly incessant uh, uh, violence uh, coming from the Israeli state, you know, seems to be something that's only really talked about, you know, by uh, uh, activists and organizers and uh, uh, alternative media outlets and, you know, sort of barely acknowledged by some of the major platforms. Well, Malcolm X had a great quote. I'm afraid I don't have it on the tip of my tongue about how land is the source of liberation. And land is also at the root of Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people through its attempts to both drive them from their land and claim as much of it as possible for itself. And this is something we're seeing played out today on an ongoing basis across occupied Palestine, not only in the West Bank, which was militarily occupied in 1967, but also within the territories occupied in 1948, the supposed state of Israel itself. Communities are being attacked by military forces, as well as other supposedly non-military Israeli state forces, and driven out from Masafar Yada, from neighborhoods in Jerusalem like Silwan and famously Sheikh Jarrah, which was in many ways the trigger of the unity intifada of last year. This is something that has never ceased. Um, We often speak of the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, as if it were something that happened in 1948. But in fact, it's an ongoing process. It's never even paused substantially. And it's at the very root of the situation that we see. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Malcolm X quote you were referencing was when he said a revolution is based on land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of uh, freedom, justice and equality. And as you say, certainly land is uh, really central and crucial to the whole question of Palestine. But bringing it home some, Joe, to the U.S., I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but when we talk about Progressive-minded people, movement people, anti-imperialists, those who uh, uh, support the Palestinian liberation struggle. Where do you think our minds should be in this moment about uh, uh, where the movement should be heading and what aspects of the struggle we should be uh, uh, highlighting and supporting? Because the issue does affect us in a number of ways. It's not an issue of, you know, taking up a problem that's uh, affecting a group of people way on the other side 
side of the world somewhere. I mean, not only have we talked about, you know, the anti-BDS laws, which is sort of a direct impact on our, you know, speech rights and things like that, but I'm also thinking about the issue of uh, racist police terror and how, you know, U.S. police are trained by Israel. They often use a lot of the same, you know, weapons like tear gas and things like that. These are all things that are not generally known, I think, by the, the general American public. So in terms of the uh, uh, pro-Palestinian movement, if you will, what do you think is sort of the direction that it should be heading in this moment as we continue to see the firming up of these relationships between imperialism and Zionism? Well, there are a number of projects exploring the kind of linkages you mentioned. One of these, which I should highlight, is the mapping project in Boston, which has really done exhaustive research on how Zionism is bound up with domestic repression in that city and how the same interests are driving both and also bringing both together. It's worth looking into not only to see how it works in one specific place, but also as an example of the kind of exploration we should be doing of how this actually works in other places across the country. Moving forward, I think one key task for all supporters of Palestine here to think about is how we're actually going to address this issue of the aid of the $3.8 billion plus that the United States gives to Israel every year to enable and sustain every one of its crimes against the Palestinian people and the people of the region. It's something that we always talk about. Until now, it hasn't really been tackled for reasons that are somewhat understandable. Everyone sees it as one of the heaviest lifts we could possibly do, and no one has yet reached a clear idea on how to challenge it. But at the same time, it is ultimately our task, and it's something that we should consider and discuss and figure out. I think that's one key thing on which all of us should unite, a project we should share, figuring out what we're going to do about that. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Joe, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are marking the anniversary of the socialist Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. Uh, sort of contrasting the reality of the situation to media misrepresentation. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Perry, a writer for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. John, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. I've just been in, in Managua celebrating the 43rd anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. And people were out on the streets all day yesterday in great celebrations and but this, is, this isn't the message that you will see if you, if you read the corporate media in the U.S. or in Europe, unfortunately. But I'm very happy to be here to talk to you about it. 
Absolutely. And we're happy to have you on to discuss just that issue, John, because as you note, you know, July 19th uh, is a day when uh, the people of Nicaragua celebrate the anniversary of the overthrow of the uh, suppressive uh, Somoza dictatorship. And as you note, uh, the reality on the ground, uh, what you see is not at all what we're told here in the West, not only about sort of uh, this anniversary of the uh, uh, Sandinista revolution, but about Nicaragua in general. But before we get too deep into that, John, I was hoping you could begin by uh, saying some more about what you've seen uh, during the celebrations in Managua. Uh, what was the uh, attendance like? What was the feeling like? And how does that differ than uh, uh, from some of the representations we see in the media? Well, normally in, in Managua on July 19th, there's a massive um, demonstration and celebration in the uh, Revolutionary Square in, in Managua itself. But for the last couple of years, because of the COVID pandemic, um, these demonstrations have been taking place, either either people traveling around in cars or uh, holding demonstrations in local cities. And that continued this time. So the big demonstrations have been in individual towns and cities. In Messiah, where I live, there, there have been demonstrations for the whole of the last month. And thousands of people have been out on the streets every Saturday afternoon, marching around Messiah with bands and uh, singing and shouting and celebrating the revolution, and particularly the achievements of the revolution over the last 15 years. In Manawa last night, there was a, a ceremony and, and, and uh, concert uh, 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 presided by Daniel Ortega, the president, and I guess there were probably about 5,000 people there. But people all over Nicaragua will have been watching on um, on television. And uh, there, there will have been hundreds of uh, demonstrations all over uh, Nicaragua yesterday during the morning uh, before people were watching the celebrations in the afternoon. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when we look at um, how these things are portrayed and how Nicaragua is portrayed, oftentimes in the Western media, uh, first of all, you know, it's not spoken about. The Sandinista Revolution isn't spoken about in terms of, you know, the revolutionary process that it is. And as you mentioned, all the gains that it's made. And above that, it it never seems to acknowledge the response of the actual people in Nicaragua uh, who are really experiencing that. I mean, they're completely in uh, uh, visibilized. And uh, what we do often hear, at least the image we get, is this image of Daniel Ortega, uh, the individual, sort of wreaking havoc and just uh, uh, engaging in this reign uh, of terror over the people of Nicaragua. And particularly since uh, the Sandinistas came back in power, I believe in 2007, John, I mean, what have been, you know, some of the gains and changes that we've seen in the country? And really, uh, uh, even before that, if you'd like to talk about the context through which uh, the Sandinista government was removed for, for a time and then came back, and how does all of that relate to the state of things in Nicaragua today? Yes, let's go back uh, quickly to 1979, because that's when the Sandinista guerrilla army defeated uh, Somoza's National Guard and took control of the, of the country for the first time. And he inherited a country that was completely destroyed by Somoza. He, he regarded it as almost his own personal fiefdom. And uh, all of the riches of the country were directed towards his family and his cronies. So the Sandinistas were faced with a country that really needed to be built from scratch. 
And then, of course, they had to confront uh, the US-sponsored Contra war that lasted throughout the 1980s and eventually led, although they won an election in 1984, it eventually led to their defeat in 1990. Then we had 16 years of neoliberal government, which again destroyed the country with very little investment. So when the Sandinistas regained power in 2007, this time they'd won uh, a fairly an election, and uh, clearly they, people were desperate for a change of uh, government, um, and they had the opportunity for the first time to really uh, implement the revolution and to start investing in the services that people needed, particularly the poorest Nicaraguans. And we have to remember that Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but they've only had 15 years uh, to do this. And really, the change in that 15 years has been quite remarkable, given that when the country, when they took over the country, in 2007, um, there had been regular power cuts for long periods every day. The roads were in a dreadful state. It was almost impossible to drive anywhere because of the holes in the roads. Um, uh, loads of children were, were, no, were not attending school. Hundreds of thousands of children were failing to go to school because they couldn't afford the charges that were being made by the schools and they didn't have school uniforms. Um, and poverty had sunk, had, uh, you know, had, had risen to enormous uh, levels. And really, the country's been transformed in a very short time. And I, I can go on to tell you about some of the achievements during those 15 years. But that's really what people were celebrating yesterday and over the last few weeks. Yeah, please do go a little deeper into some of those accomplishments. Well, just the things that affect everyday life. You know, we were subject to others here. Um, uh, for the last few years of the of the uh, uh, neoliberal government, and we were subjected to daily power cuts. Well, those quickly stopped because the government invested in small power stations and then started a massive investment program in renewable energy. So that now the seventy five percent of the country's electricity supply comes from renewable sources. And the electricity system, which only covered 50% of the country, now covers 99% of the country. There's a similar story in drinking water for people living in cities. 93% have access to drinking water now, and only half did uh, when the Sandinistas took over. And really, the transformations in, in education and health have been perhaps some of the most impressive. Now, nearly all children go to school and one good reason for that is that they get a free um, lunch. And in fact, in the poorest areas, they get both a free breakfast and a free lunch. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's tremendous incentive to go to school. And the education system is free right up to adult level. So now we have adults learning in technical colleges and so on. Uh, and you can really carry on learning for the whole of your life if you want to. And education is free. Then in the health service, um, unlike in the U.S., we have a free public health system um, that, again, was in a terrible state in 2007. But this poor country in Central America has built 23 new hospitals in just 15 years. And we faced the, the COVID crisis like everyone else. But with, with you know, extensive preparation, um, there were 37,000 people in working in the Nicaraguan Health Service, and they were all trained early in 2020 to face the pandemic. 
Um, and during the pandemic itself, uh, we had the, one of the lowest levels of excess deaths in, in Latin America. And the hospital system was never saturated in the way it was in, in the US and indeed in, in my country, the UK, during that period. And yet we didn't have lockdowns because the, the government decided that um, really the country couldn't cope with lockdowns because so many people uh, eat uh, in, in a day what they've earned in a day, if you like, that, they, that you know, their earnings are very low and many people work uh, for themselves or for very small businesses. So there was no lockdown, but there were measures to control the, the epidemic and those, those measures worked. Yeah, and, you know, of course, in 2018, there was a U.S.-backed coup attempt in Nicaragua that was, you know, very violent. More than 200 people died. And uh, uh, following that, I mean, if we look to the election in Nicaragua in 2021, I mean, we talked about it here on the show. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, a a ceaseless attack, seemingly, you know, uh, claiming that uh, the Ortega government was, you know, just simply jailing all of the opposition to be rid of, you know, all of uh, uh, his competition and things like that. I mean, the New York Times uh, published articles with headlines like Nicaragua descends into autocratic rule as Ortega crushes dissent. And so, I mean, John, what is the reality of um, how uh, Nicaraguan people, frankly, feel about uh, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinista government? I mean, I feel like these things are, you know, measured, you know, with polls and statistics, just like you would see with any country and uh, any government. But, I mean, what is the reality of the, the, the sentiment towards the Ortega government in Nicaragua right now? Well, uh, let me tell you a little bit about um, what happened in Masaya, the city where I live, because it was one that was most affected by uh, the coup attempt in 2018. Now, as I mentioned, the streets of Masaya have been filled with people celebrating uh, the anniversary of the revolution over the last few weeks. And why are they on the streets? Well, in part, it's because they want to celebrate the the government's achievements and the fact that they've now got good schools, good hospitals, good roads, uh, and so on. But it's also because they're they're really expressing their relief that after the violence in 2018, um, the the country has returned to to peace. And um, the Sandinista government won the elections last November. And people now feel very secure, you know, the uh, homicide levels uh, which were historically low in Nicaragua compared with other countries. Uh, of course, during the coup attempts, there was much more violence, but the homicide levels have returned to what they were before. So Nicaragua is again the safest country in Central America and one of the safest countries in all of Latin America. So people have much to celebrate. And uh, in Masai in particular, we suffered terribly in uh, 2018. Um, the, 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 when the protest started in April 2018, um, the government entered negotiations with the protesters to uh, try to address some of their concerns. And as part of the negotiations, the government agreed that the police who had been accused of uh, killing demonstrators would be taking their police stations. And in return for this, the, the protesters were supposed to remove the roadblocks that they put all around the country in, um, in late April 2018. Uh, but the, 
the government's complied with its promise. They kept the police in the police station, but the opposition didn't comply with their uh, promise to remove the roadblocks. And in fact, the roadblocks became worse in um, in Masaya itself. There were hundreds of these roadblocks, many of them controlled by people with uh, serious weapons. And they began a campaign of terror in, in the cities that they controlled. In Masaya, five police officers were killed. One was horribly tortured before he was killed. And many Sandinista supporters were killed. And that lasted for three months. And the police eventually were, were told by the government to move into the cities that were controlled by the protesters and end the sieges that were taking place. And, of course, a few people were killed when that happened, but it was a relatively peaceful um, takeover of the cities. And within three months, uh, Nicaragua was starting to return to normality again. And I think most of the people who initially supported the uh, the opposition quickly realised that it wasn't a good idea and uh, that mayhem would result if, if um, they, they had taken over. So four years uh, on... We're celebrating uh, that achievement, that uh, recognition that the Sandinista government had worked very hard to make the country secure, and it's done so again over that period. Part of this is um, has been reflected, for example, in arrests of those who were the leaders of the opposition, uh, and this happened last year before the before in some cases before the elections. Um, and these are described by uh, the New York Times and other um, mainstream media as political prisoners. But they, these are people who, who were going outside the country, calling for the U.S. Uh, to uh, impose sanctions against Nicaragua, even perhaps in some cases to, to ask for a military intervention. And we're accepting money from, from the U.S., from U.S. government agencies like the National Endowment for Democracy to um, uh, to overthrow or help overthrow the Sandinista government. And, of course, running up to the election, there was tremendous fear in the country that the, the overthrow attempt that had failed in 2018 uh, would be made again and there would be violence before the elections, which is why the arrests took place. Yeah, and... <laughs> You know, one thing that, that, that always comes to mind when discussing this, John, and, you know, whether it's Nicaragua, whether it's Cuba, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's, you know, any number of countries in Latin America or around the world that uh, faces these um, attacks by the U.S., by the big uh, imperialist countries, um, th- these, uh, frankly, these assaults on their democracies and their sovereignties. What is the value of Nicaragua to the U.S. and the West. Why is it so important that the most powerful governments on earth target and attack a a, a country like Nicaragua that is only trying to operate under their own systems, under their own politics, under their own uh, processes and definitions of democracies, their own uh, cultural mores and things like this. I mean, it, it seems to me that Nicaragua didn't do anything to deserve that. But, you know, why is it that Washington and the other sort of major metropoles uh, 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 so feverishly try to scuttle the uh, Sandinista revolution and try to carry out regime change in that country? Well, as you say, in a way, it seems absurd, doesn't it? Here we have a country of just over 6 million people. The size of the Nicaraguan economy is, is about the size of a, a medium-sized U.S. city. 
Um, you know, it's not even as big as a U.S. state. Uh, and yet, um, President Trump and now President Biden have both declared it as a, a strategic threat to the interests of the United States, which is clearly ridiculous. Um, but in a way, it is a strategic threat because um, Nicaragua is an example. I mean, uh, you know, we know that um, Central American countries like Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador all send hundreds of thousands of migrants towards the U.S. every year because of the conditions in those countries and the fact that uh, people don't have work and uh, public services are very uh, depleted in those countries. Nicaragua isn't like that. Yes, of course, there is some migration to, to the States because the economy still hasn't recovered fully from what happened in 2018. Um, but there isn't the repression here and the uh, 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 terrible economic conditions that exist in, for example, neighboring Honduras. So Nicaragua really is a threat of a good example. But, but let me mention something. Um, Secretary of State Lincoln was in Costa Rica meeting uh, Central American leaders, uh, I think, at the start of this year. Uh, Nicaragua wasn't invited to... Or, uh, Nicaragua did go to the meeting, actually, uh, but it was a meeting of all Central American foreign ministers. And he said that what we have to do is to work towards uh, improving the real conditions of people in Central America. And he was obviously thinking about the sort of factors that mean that um, migration from countries like Honduras and Guatemala to the states is very high. What he didn't consider was the fact that Nicaragua is actually doing what he said. It is investing in uh, its people, uh, as I've tried to, dis to, to describe in this interview. And it seems a great pity that the U.S. won't recognize that. And uh, worse... Uh, through the corporate media, um, puts across this persistent message that uh, Nicaragua is corrupt, that uh, it's repressive, that people are suffering. Whereas, in fact, you know, Nicaraguan people, generally speaking, are very happy. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, uh, very happy to celebrate the achievements of their government. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252113201320 our rapper is all standing by 
You can also check out the show on SputnikNews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also download the show at Sputnik.Mave.Digital. That's Sputnik.M-A-V-E.Digital. And as always, you can check us out live here on Rumble. That's Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. And you can check us out on Twitter at B-A-M necessary as well. But however you hit us up and wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you and we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by maurice cook founder of serve your city and anthony lorenzo green an advisory neighborhood commission 7c04 representing the deanwood community right here in washington dc maurice lorenzo thank you both so much for joining us happy to be here hey maurice hey sean hey brother lorenzo it's good to connect with you hey, how come we gotta be on the show to talk to each other it don't make no sense <laughs> well, we're uh, <clears throat> we're uh, reconnecting bonds here on uh, by any means necessary. This is a part of how we build the movement, folks. But definitely, I, I did want to have this conversation with two native Washingtonians who have seen how D.C. has sort of evolved and uh, progressed over the last years, uh, oftentimes to the uh, 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 chagrin, if you will, of its uh, black population and its poor and, and struggling people in general. And, you know, the first thing I wanted to touch on, uh, and Marisa, I wanted to go to you first on this, because we've talked before on the show about uh, health, race and class in Washington, D.C., and how that plays out and also uh, uh, how it reflects sort of broader dynamics, I think, uh, across the country. And at that time, we were we were having the discussion within the context of COVID-19. But now it's being reported that Washington, D.C. is the monkeypox capital of the United States. There is the highest number of monkeypox cases per capita in D.C. more than any other uh, place. As of Monday morning, and this is according to the D.C.ist, as of Monday morning, Washington, D.C. reported 122 cases of monkeypox, which is more than uh, any state in the U.S., and has identified more than 530 close contacts of those cases since the first case was detected back in the city in early June. That's a quote. Uh, the, it goes on to say, with vaccine supply from the federal government still limited and testing nationwide slow to ramp up, the city is focusing its awareness and vaccination efforts on groups most at risk of, con of, of contracting the virus while attempting to avoid the logistical complications and equity gaps that beset the city's COVID-19 vaccination rollout. And I mean, I think that they were being generous in that description there. Um, and even in the Washington Post, there's uh, uh, there was an opinion piece that was saying that, you know, we have to consider a monkeypox a pandemic at this point. And so, Maurice, it, it sort of feels that um, we're back at this sort of age old problem of, you know, resources, who gets what, which communities in D.C. Uh, uh, take precedent and all these sorts of things. Now, I feel like I should note 
that according to this uh, DCS article, 63% of the monkeypox cases uh, 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 in DC occur in white men and 24% in black men uh, who are residents. Now, why they restricted it to males, I'm not entirely sure. Nevertheless, this is what they have uh, uh, put forth. And so while statistically, at least at this point, it doesn't appear that, that black folks are the most at risk for monkeypox per se, when one takes into account um, the kind of broader network of systemic issues that are already facing uh, uh, black DC with health being just one of them. I feel like that sort of gives, you know, a clearer picture at the at the risk that a lot of people face with that in DC. At least this is just my thinking. And so I'm just curious from your standpoint, how you're sort of viewing, you know, perhaps the preparedness of the city to deal with this monkeypox issue, how you think it may play out and just, you know, do you uh, uh, see some sort of a familiar dynamics uh, emerging as monkeypox uh, continues to escalate here in the nation's capital? Well, I'm a, I'm a mess up a, um, and thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. And it's so, you know, what a blessing to be on with uh, brother Lorenzo who does so much work. Uh, for our people and, and says what needs to be said and does what needs to be done. Um, but I'm going to say, you know, the old uh, NFL or Bill Parcells quote, you know, we are what our record says we are. And Washington, D.C., I tell you, you know, when it comes to um, the discriminatory outcomes uh, because of the discriminatory practices, because of the discriminatory design of who receives the benefits of the resources that are generated in the city and who does not. Um, there is no way um, that they could ever create um, in a response to something that, you know, especially a health issue, that it could be equitable. There is no dynamic or no function or no benefit that is distributed equitably here in Washington, D.C. And so this is going to play out as everything generally plays out um, here in the city when it comes to access to quality health care, when it comes to um, who law enforcement and criminalization focuses on when it comes to the opportunity to live indoors inside our housing crisis, when it comes to food, when it comes to toilet paper, when it comes to education, when it comes to everything, the same people always seem to get the short end of the stick. So this, this will be no different. And we are what our record says we are. Yeah, I think that's a fact. Uh, Lorenzo, curious your thoughts on the same question. Well, you definitely hit it on the nail. We are what our record says we are. And, and Maurice, you know as well from your work with Serve Our City, especially during a response uh, to COVID during the pandemic. Well, we still are in the pandemic. But, you know, Serve Our City was one of the many Black-led, Black-run organizations that were on the front lines, basically showing the city how you respond to a crisis, how you deliver services to marginalized people in our community, you show up to where they are. So here we are today. It feels like the city hasn't really learned much from that experience. The monkeypox vaccine, yeah, you can sign up for it now in very limited supply, as you already outlined. 
Uh, but you got to go all the way up northwest. And, and it's definitely targeted to mostly uh, uh, people who don't look like me. Uh, even when you go to the clinic in northwest or to either one of the clinics in northwest, there's a sign outside that says monkey packs, I mean, monkeypox vaccine clinic uh, with a line of LGBTQ folks. And it's sort of like if you weren't out, that would not be a space that you felt comfortable or safe in. Because uh, anyone can walk by and, and see like, oh, this long line of gay people waiting to get the monkeypox vaccine that wrongly is being promoted uh, in a way like it's uh, only LGBTQ disease. Uh, when in reality, we're seeing a lot of different people get this and not from sexual contact. So uh, it's just repeating itself, the whole system repeating itself. Uh, and I'm thinking about those who are most marginalized in our city, those who are in the sex industry, sex workers mostly who are black and brown, especially who are involved in street-based sex work. A lot of their clientele are white men, okay? They're white men. So we're saying that, okay, you're going to target this vaccine to one population. It's kind of, this data is showing that, you know, one uh, demographic is, 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 I don't know, what, whatever the data is showing, but, but we're seeing that it is untransmissible and it is getting to many different people. We should have the vaccine available to everyone and make sure that we actually have a clinic east of the river on the black side of the city, and we don't have that. A slow response, but it's not surprising. This is the way we've always been responded. Whether we're talking about jobs or talking about how our healthcare system isn't really catering to those who need it the most in this city, no matter how many times you say that, oh, everyone has insurance. Well, it's about the quality of the care that people aren't receiving. So it's it's just repeating itself over and over. And sometimes when you're black in D.C., you can feel like. There's really not much you can do because every time you look around, you see more and more of your own people being pushed out of the city and more and more folks who don't look like me who are actually making decisions of what's coming to our community. Yeah. And just so folks are clear, um, you know, when Lorenzo talks about Northwest D.C., I mean, this is a, a, a more affluent, uh, considerably wider uh, a part of the town, as he's pointing out, often gets these uh, 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 these resources. And uh, I'm glad you raised the issue of how it's impacting the LGBTQ uh, uh, community, uh, Lorenzo, because I actually meant to mention this when I was giving those statistics earlier, because uh, uh, the same piece says residents who identified as gay make up 92 percent of the city's current cases uh, and the majority are men that are in the 30 to 34 age range. This is according to D.C. Health and uh, D.C. Health Director LaQuandra Nesbitt uh, said, quote, it is extremely important to note that while the majority of the cases during this outbreak are occurring in individuals who identify as members of the LGBTQ plus community, this is not a disease of the LGBTQ plus community. Anyone can contract monkeypox. This is extremely important that we do not create stigma at this time and that we encourage individuals to be on the lookout for symptoms, which I think speaks directly to what you were just saying, Lorenzo. And Maurice, you know, this uh, this question of resources, it, it, it reminds me immediately of uh, uh, during the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. I was living in Southeast. I was living in Congress Heights. This is a, you know, poor and working class uh, black neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And people all over the, you know, and, and people, other people definitely know this as well. We may have even talked about it here on the show about how, you know, you saw a lot of, you know, white people coming to the black neighborhoods 
to get their vaccine. You know what I mean? And it uh, it, it it I think shows a lot, particularly in the context of D.C. as a rapidly gentrifying city. And when one also considers that uh, 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 when the, the sort of broader economic situation in the United States where prices are rising and uh, with wages stagnating in a place that is already uh, uh, generally too expensive for most people to be able to afford to live, well, then all of this, I think, takes on a, uh, a whole other kind of uh, complexion, uh, quite uh, literally. You see what I mean? And so in, in having a broader look at the thing, I mean, it just looks as though uh, they're sort of, you know, doing the same thing and expecting like a different outcome. I mean, sure, you know, uh, you know, as of now, we're sort of seeing uh, a pronouncement of uh, trying to avoid, you know, the same pitfalls from the COVID rollout. But even still, uh, you know, the rollout is one thing, but the sort of real tensions and contradictions around uh, racism, who gets access to what in this city, to me, seems like it still remains. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Nothing has changed. I mean, you know, what you are speaking of, when we saw the migration of people, you know, this, this, this city is divided by two rivers, but one of the rivers that also divides economic class. And, and unfortunately, that is, that is intertwined um, racially here in Washington, D.C. Um, but when we saw, let me speak for myself. You know, I'm I'm 51 years old. You know, born and raised in and around the city, and I had never seen white people in certain areas before. They had the opportunity to take advantage of resources that were designed to address the inequity of access for vaccines in the black community and white people from across the river took advantage of those opportunities and utilized those resources that were designated to target the people most vulnerable from COVID-19. And when I saw that, I really understood fundamental um, truth about not just Washington, D.C., but about the United States of America. And there is no way that we can create um, strategies to reform that or untie that um, when that has not even been acknowledged. It's impossible. So, so if and when it does spread, and you know, it could potentially spread and be a, a very serious issue quickly, um, we will see more of the same. This is Brother Lorenzo said, just as you're stating. We will see more of the same. It, there has been no acknowledgement of, of, of how those advantage, advantages went to those most resourced. And so how in the world could you address the challenge when you won't acknowledge that there is a challenge? Definitely. And, you know, Lorenzo, that makes me think, because, of course, you're the advisory neighborhood commissioner uh, in in Deanwood here in D.C., which is a, a black community here that I believe you also hail from. And I mean, number one, uh, you maybe you could uh, explain a little bit of just what uh, an ANC is and does. But it makes me wonder 
How do officials at that level, at that kind of hyperlocal level, particularly in communities where there's already a serious lack of resources, how do you grapple with these tensions and these contradictions and the lack of things that are available to your people. And I know that, you know, during COVID, like we saw around the country, there were the development of these, you know, mutual aid networks and things like that, getting people what they need. But uh, like with with someone who is in a position like yours as an ANC and you take a look around and you see this issue happening and also seeing it directly connected to sort of other ongoing issues that are happening in these communities. I mean, how do you... How do you how do you deal with that? I mean, what what is the struggle like uh, uh, trying to make sure that your folks get the things that they need while, you know, in a city that seemingly wants to refuse to give it to them? You know what I mean? And it makes my job very difficult, um, which is uh, why it's important uh, for people to have representation that actually represents them um, and understands the needs firsthand because they live it every day. Uh, like as an advisory neighborhood commissioner, you know, I sit on a local neighborhood uh, council, which is what we were originally called uh, when home rule was drafted until the D.C. council changed that to commissions. But that's another story. But for, for advisory council for the community. So any issue that's impacting the community from zoning issues, public safety, education, uh, and even the rollout of services that our tax dollars pay for to help us in a pandemic, you know, it's my job to not only advise the community of what's going on, but to advise the government of how they need to be responding to the people that they're supposed to be working for. Uh, That's why I was happy, you know, during the, the early days of the pandemic, I was part of Black Lives Matter D.C., we joined up with many other organizations uh, to found the East of the River Mutual Aid Group. And that was necessary in a, in a time that it needed to be uh, so that people can tap in and learn what mutual aid is about and recognize how their city isn't responding to them. And I'm sure you recall uh, when the mayor herself uh, during a press conference, gave out the number uh, to mutual aid, telling people to call mutual aid. And it was sort of like, wait a minute, uh, we jumped out here to fill the gap that you left. You know, uh, your government is not responding to the people. Uh, so it's on us, the people, to really put the pressure on those who are supposed to be representing us and actually rise up to the moment to fill the positions, be leaders ourselves, not sitting back and waiting on these folks year after year that constantly dictate to us what's in our best interest, we got to take power into our own hands uh, and mold it and frame it the way that we see fit in this city, especially many of us who are natives, who are fighting hardest is, I don't know what, to keep our people here in this city, in a city that's no longer affordable for anybody, uh, to a point where what's classified as affordable housing is more luxury condo units. You know, I, I got condos coming to Deanwood and they're calling them affordable housing. So, you know, that's the battle that I'm stuck in uh, and I'm going to continue to be in because I'm going to stay here and I'm going to make sure that many other people that want to stay here can have that opportunity to raise their families here and own property here, uh, own their and run their own businesses here, especially many folks who look like me so we can get out of this this society where we're just trapped and <laughs> being dependent on capitalist 
uh, organizations who want to dictate whether we get decent health care or not, or whether uh, the women in our country can make decisions for their own bodies, or whether black men can actually walk down the street in D.C. without being killed or shot and having the media justify why we should have been shot and killed in the middle of the street. So that's that's our battle here. And we're going to stay committed to that. And we got to continue to organize around that. And, you know, that's what I take in my position as a commissioner. Not every ANC does that. Uh, many people have different agendas. <laughs> you know, we're all politicians. But the thing is, I don't, I don't live the life of a politician. I live the life of an everyday black man who's trying to survive and trying to make sure that I can raise kids here. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by Maurice Cook and Anthony Lorenzo Green. And Lorenzo, when we left off, uh, you were talking about how there are condos that are coming to Deanwood, you know, uh, masquerading as affordable housing, as as they often like to do. It's incredible. You know, D.C. Square's got so much affordable housing, and yet the rents are still so high. So it's, it's uh, always a question about, you know, like affordable for whom? I guess technically almost anything could be available, uh, uh, affordable to someone. But uh, I'm looking at this piece in uh, uh, Axios that's talking about rent increases in D.C. And it says from uh, first quarter 2021 to first quarter 2022, rents in the D.C. metro area went up 15.7 percent, according to Delta Associates data. Delta Associates also found that in 2012 Class A high-end downtown D.C. apartments went for around $3.03 per square foot per month. In 2020, that dropped to $2.52, but in first quarter 2022, it rose to $3.49. And it adds that that means an 800-square-foot apartment would have gone from $2,016 per month in 2020 to $2,792 now, an almost $800 increase. And I mean, even some of these numbers that they're using as base are pretty insane. And this is an aside, like, Lorenzo, I don't know if you've been seeing like these videos, like these TikToks about people talking about their D.C. apartments and just casually talking about how they spend two and three thousand dollars a month on rent. It's it's mind blowing. But see what we're happening in what's what we're seeing happen in D.C. in terms of housing is also true across the United States. There's basically nowhere in this country that a person working a full time job on minimum wage can afford to live. So when we talk about uh, uh, gentrification, displacement, so-called uh, uh, development, this is happening in places big and small cities and towns all across the U.S. And we're definitely seeing it and have been seeing it in D.C. 
um, uh, uh, for some time. And I mean, you know, I've lived in D.C. for eight years. And so by the time I got here, that process was already well underway. But even in that time, so much has changed and shifted. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like housing is one of those kind of core issues that we see constantly being ramped up and we see the same lies and tricks from these developers and the same (laughs) acquiescence from, you know, city authorities around the same issue and things like that. And I just feel like it's just such a a glaring example of how people, how people's lives and livelihoods are attacked through these uh, fundamental, crucial, important resources like housing. You know what I mean? Right. And we got to also acknowledge how corporations have swallowed up so much property, uh, not just across the country, but here in D.C., you know, just sort of just boosting up the market, the value of the market, making it unaffordable for everybody else. You know, it's, it's crazy how I'll have a conversation with an elder who's very concerned about a vacant home next door to them. Like, why, why is it so hard getting the city to do something about this vacant home, you know, something about the structure or, or is impacting my property? And, you know, the city will send BCRA out, you know, put endless fines on it, but it's, you're finding an LLC, right? An LLC that's based in Texas or is a shell for, uh, you know, uh, a foreign corporation. So it's, it's a battle when you see it on the local level, right, in your face. Uh, and and you realize that uh, you kind of see how rigged the game is. They take the market and make it so out of reach. Um, and our local politicians made it, made it very easy when they wanted to tinker with the TOPA law, with Tenants Opportunity to Purchase Act, um, where they basically said if you were renting in a single-family home, you no longer had the right to buy the house if the house was put up for sale. No longer had that right. Do you know how many houses were flipped around Deanwood just off of that alone, so many folks who were long time uh, renting homes, you know, because they thought it's decently priced, rent's affordable over here. You know, I'm, I was able to raise my family. You know, the landlord was decent, didn't give me no problems. And all of a sudden, poof, they had an opportunity to make some money off of me. And they flipped it, gave me four to six months to leave the property. Then you had to go find somewhere else to live in the city. After you didn't raise your babies in that house, thinking that one day you would be able to buy it if they were going to sell it. So it's, it's things like that, that harm us. And it, it bothers me sometimes and how we'll justify the behavior. Like uh, I believe it was a Washington Post article that quoted someone who voted for the mayor, even though they had a long list of issues, even blamed the mayor for pushing out all their neighbors, but they wanted to give the mayor another chance to fix it. Wow. You know, it's, it's crazy, but it, but I can understand that person. I, like, I sat in a room with someone like that, many people like that. Like, they really will give you the benefit of the doubt to do right. But there comes a point where we got to, you know, we got to stop the bleeding ourselves. That's a fact. That's a fact. And Maurice, I'm definitely interested in your thoughts on this as someone who does a lot of organizing and work uh, around our houseless neighbors here in D.C. And again, looking at this from a national standpoint, I'm um, looking at a piece in policyadvice.net that says in the year 2021, last year, the number of homeless people in the United States was estimated at 552,830 people. 
So that's 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 around half a million people that are, are living in a state of houselessness. You know what I mean? And if we look at D.C., according to local statistics, there's something like 17 or 18,000 empty units that uh, uh, are currently in the city with a lot of them, certainly a lot of the newer uh, uh, housing units uh, being these luxury type deals that have these sky high rents that the average person cannot even begin to uh, uh, really afford. You know what I mean? So, I mean, how are you uh, sort of seeing that folded in to some of like the broader political and social issues that we're seeing in the city right now? Well, one of the ways that you kind of um, set it up, Sean, you talked about, you know, the plans of the developers and the acquiescence of our city officials. But I I don't think that's a correct frame. It's the collaboration Mm. of our city officials. Um, You know, part of what Brother Lorenzo was talking about, if you scale it out, there is so much public land that has just been given to developers for 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 a cost like a dollar to to lease public land for ninety nine. We think about all of the parcels around the newly developed wharf area. That public that was public land. That public land was given away. We think about the development um, at the former um, RFK site or the former uh, DC General site, Reservation Thirteen, public land. That public land was basically given away. We think about the development um, at the McMillan Water Reservoir uh, infiltration station that was there for so many years. That public land it has basically been given away, and it goes. The list goes on and on and on, where we have more people who cannot afford to live a decent life here in the city. Our local elected city officials are working with developers to to develop even more expensive, unaffordable property. And you know, the sad part about it, and I guess this is a this is a continuation of a, of our kind of you know I hate to frame it this way, but our 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 our, our uh, trail of tears, right? We our bodies have been used to hurt us in so many ways to benefit this country. And the fact that we are here in the 21st century in a city that used to be, you know, what I, you know, nostalgically remember it as a very proud working class, majority black enclave. The city used to be a power base for black people and black nationalism. Black people have, have, have been utilized. Their bodies once again has have been utilized their tax money, their tax-generated revenue has been used to make this city less expensive for them. So we are literally paying for our disappearance here in the city because our elected officials have opted to work for these developers instead of for the interest of the people who actually pay the revenue to give the incredible bond ratings an incredible borrowing power and potential for these developers to come in, get a sweetheart deal of public land. And and what is the outcome? You see more and more of us on the street. And when we're on the street, what do they do? They criminalize us for, for not being able to afford to live inside. We are criminalized 
by having to live outside. And that is the story. Lorenzo, this this framing um, that Maurice has of the city being given away. That that really uh, uh, strikes me and it really resonates. And I think it's true. I've never thought about it quite in those terms. But I mean, literally, when you look at how some of these deals go down, all these sweetheart deals and things that these corporate entities uh, and these shell companies that you mentioned earlier, that they benefit from. I mean, just get these incredible uh, 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 pieces of land and developments for, for like nothing. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, so many people in this city that has money and resources, right? Uh, to me, I mean, it's just criminal. But what does the city do with those resources? It gives them to the police and all these sorts of things, you know? all It's, it's clear that, you know, the priorities of the city leadership is to uh, fund and support those things that are harmful and violent to its poor working and oppressed people, but to completely cut off and hoard the resources that would help those same elements. How do you see it? Well, uh, I always wonder how anyone can open their mouth and complain about violence in the city while at the same time starving children in this city. Um, They wonder why every year, same age range of kids who are involved in um, robberies, carjackings, every single year. Um, but every time we talk about it on the news or in communities, like, oh, my God, what is going on? Crime is going up. I'm like, what do you mean? This is the same cycle we've been stuck in. What do you mean? You know, it's a new batch of kids waiting to fall right into that tube because we, as a city, haven't done the work uh, that is forcing our children to go to the streets for survival, just to eat just to have clothes on their back, just to get a ride somewhere, just to do simple things, simple things. And and that's the measure that I always look at it from, um, based on how effective our so-called work is, how effective all these millions and millions of dollars that we funnel into policing, funnel into the pockets of developers, funnel into, I guess, your friends, not your friends, Sean, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> Friends of uh, uh, certain politicians who want to make sure their crew is paid all before the community gets their return on the investment. Mm. Right? We we've been living in food deserts for I don't know how long. We could have been invested in a community grocery co-op. We could have been done that. We could have been invested in uh, community land trusts. You know, and I'm glad that that conversation is being talked more about today. But if People who look like me in leadership claim to be fighting for black people. They should have been at the forefront of this from the get-go instead of just trying to make sure they cut little deals for whoever that, that's not not benefiting me. You know, I'm still waiting. I'm, I, I'm still, I'm depending on little uh, notices like, oh, we're going to do, uh, what's the thing, eminent domain. Right, uh, like we've been through that before with Walmart. Okay, let's see how Giant plays. They, they may they may play well because you have friends in Giant, you have friends in that union. I got friends in that union, so it's like I understand how the game is being played. But at the same time, you know, don't don't keep playing with the emotions of the people that I represent because I got to go back to them and explain all of this, and explain the delays, and explain when it doesn't happen. And explain why it takes 10, 20 years. Explain why we got to pass the work to the next generation of leaders. 
you know, we can do the work now and, and be real about it. Um, but it, it takes a little backbone to call certain folks out and, and, and really push the needle where it need to really, <laughs> where it really need to go, which is centering the community, centering the black side of this city, especially in all of our organizing spaces. Yeah, that's a fact. I mean, you talk about backbone. That's definitely important. And <laughs> I tell you, if there's anyone who has plenty of that, it's uh, Washingtonians <laughs> in my experience. And, you know, the, the the food desert issue that you just raised is just so ridiculous. And it seems like almost every year, you know, we, we, we hear about, you know, people. People are, you know, I think talking about the issue and have been, and that's good. But it's kind of like at some point every year, you know, it gets brought up and, you know, maybe some plans are kicked around. Maybe we should do this and maybe we do that. But there's never any action. And that's precisely a, a part of the uh, uh, issue. And you said something that to me w- was heartbreaking, but I think is unfortunately true that I think is directed, excuse me, connected to that in terms of resources. When you talk about how there is a new generation of young people on deck who are poised to, you know, uh, be subject to a lot of these same problems and a lot of these same social issues that plague our communities now. And why? Because uh, the systems and institutions that have been at the root of these problems for years are still in place and are unchanged. And, you know, I want to talk more about this on the other side of the break, but I think there's a reason why we continue to see certain issues and continue to also see certain quote unquote solutions being uh, put forth by those in power. But we're going to go to another quick break on that note here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Maurice Cook is here. Anthony Lorenzo Green is here. And uh, I want to uh, connect two things that we've uh, been talking about, uh, you know, in our conversation so far this hour in terms of the issue of violence and other social contradictions in our communities. And these broader systemic issues of uh, housing and displacement and all these sorts of things. And Maurice, uh, a little earlier, you made reference to, you know, the city selling off these major uh, land developments for a dollar. Well, I I want our listeners to know that's no exaggeration. That's a real thing. And I was actually mentioning on the show just yesterday about how the the wharf where we saw this uh, shooting of a 23-year-old David Wilson of Dumfries, Virginia, by uh, uh, C- Commander Jason Bagshaw of the D.C. Police Department, who is known and infamous uh, as someone who is brutal and violent to uh, activists on the street. That same wharf complex that they were at, a multi-multi-multi-million-dollar development, literally sold for a dollar. So we've got that piece And then we've got the uh, uh, sort of police violence piece 
although Bagshaw was off duty, even still. And then, of course, there's the broader issues that we've been laying out about how, you know, all these resources go elsewhere, except for in the communities where they're needed the most. And when we see these issues, these social contradictions, what is put forth as the solution? More police, more policing, all of these uh, uh, sorts of things. And so it does not obviously resolve those contradictions. All it does is worsen the conditions inside these communities, which just sort of deepens the cycle that's already ongoing. And so like Lorenzo said earlier, from different local leaders, you know, we hear all the time, oh man, there's violence. Oh yeah, violence, violence is so terrible. We got to do something, but there never seems to be a move from them to uh, actually want that to happen, even though they have the power to do so. And as such, you know, folks got to mobilize and organize as DC has done and continues to do for years to really apply that kind of pressure and make that change, you know? I would say we have to acknowledge that there are too many people in power that benefit from the status quo. It's just plain and And it's almost like they have a routine that they go through every spring leading into summer when it comes to how we're going to respond to the wild young black people out of control, frightening everybody, specifically frightening the new residents who, in my mind, had the audacity to come and live on, on each side of the ship. And so when, a, when an area is purposely disinvested, you have a purpose disinvestment, and there's a, there's a potential industry being created, the developer industry, the development industry, and you sell purposely disinvested property to high-income earners where now you've created uh, an interracial and, to, and a mixed-class-oriented community, but, of course, that power dynamic shifts. And the uh, distribution and the disbursement of the poor community can no longer hold on to the political power, and so their interests are, are marginalized. And everything is catered to that new high-earning income community. And one of the greatest examples of this, because we refuse to address the inequity and the normalization of poverty and oppression historically within these communities, but an example of a city that has a will to get something done is represented, in my mind, by bike lanes. I have never seen the city of Washington, D.C. implement such a large-scale plan and have such effectiveness in its implementation than I have with bike lanes. And, you know, I am not against bike lanes. I am against the prioritization of bike lanes over black children eating over black children having a safe neighborhood to live in, over black children having an equitable, real educational and job opportunity in Washington, D.C. And so what I'm planning to do is highlight their prioritization of the bike lane, you know, environment within Washington, D.C., because it speaks absolutely to what they care about and whose interests that they actually serve. I've never seen something done so effectively in the city. 
And I challenge anyone to tell me that black children are being prioritized in its implementation. Yeah. I mean, uh, for those who may not be aware, I mean, bike lanes, a a passionate issue uh, here in Washington, D.C. And I think you're right, Maurice, in that it shows that this city can absolutely accomplish things when it wants to and for the benefit of the people that it wants to benefit. Now, the question of just who that is, as we've been uh, uh, putting forth, you know what I mean? And a similar question, Lorenzo, particularly on the um, issue of violence, which, you know, is, is something that we hear about all the time in a way that, frankly, I feel it's like uh, it's fear mongering. It feels like a lot of, you know, that narrative is is messaging to people who don't even live in uh, D.C.'s black communities where they where these uh, uh, issues uh, tend to be sharpest, which is not to say there are not like, you know, pro police uh, elements and sentiments within these black communities. There are. And that's just kind of, you know, a part of uh, the landscape of, you know, different communities that you go into. But uh, even still, it's sort of like uh, it feels almost like a PR campaign sometimes where, you know, we'll see the maybe the police chief or the mayor and they'll go, yeah, you know, we got to do something about, like I think Maurice said, we got to do something about these scary black kids. So we're just going to, you know, send a bunch of armed cops in here to, you know, keep keep them in their place and to, you know, uh, do what they have to do, basically, to make sure that they don't get out of hand. And so when we see this violence that happens so often to our young people, particularly, I feel like there's a particular impact on young black people in D.C. and cities like it, where we see it play out. And so there's always, you know, endless money, a bottomless coffers for the police. But, you know, we see a lot of po-mouthing, to use a term, when it comes to actual resources that would help not only young people, but entire communities. I think we really have to dig deep and get grounded in really centering how younger voices coming up in the city can move the needle in this more passionately than simply having the same old faces in the room. Um, It's so easy for us to kind of swap out some seats here or, and I'm not just talking about like council spaces, but with our education system, right? How, the way the charter school board is able to authorize and disapprove charter license and how that impacts the community, real estate, how that impacts the neighborhood school, how certain services like TANF and benefits when it comes to the unemployment system, how for many years that was an improved investment in because of IT issues that they always wanted to hang their hat on. It's a litany of issues that you can run the gamut on that definitely can leave a lot of people in a space where they feel like they can't do anything. I feel like they're not being heard on how we move these needles. But at the same time, you wonder, when you look around the world, when is that going to be us? So when, is, when are we going to get to the point and say enough is enough um, and actually you know, rise up and move things the way that it needs to be moved. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Maurice, what what, uh, Lorenzo is describing is actually 
a big part of what I really appreciate and love about uh, uh, sort of DC's organizing culture in the sense that for a long time, you know, there's been these uh, community-based efforts. Maybe it's just a handful of people who are just passionately uh, uh, working on these sorts of things. And so for me, the real hope it's not in the uh, city government, certainly, because we see what they do. We know what their class interest is. We've been talking about priorities. We know who and what their priorities are. And it's not the struggling people of the city, because that's precisely uh, who the city is trying to remove. But the real hope is indeed uh, amongst uh, the people who made this city, right? The very folks who made D.C. Um, an appealing place to begin with. You know what I mean? With all of its uh, 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 cultural affect and things like this that, you know, uh, is often sort of um, uplifted and advertised. But I just feel like, you know, whether we're talking about go-go or whatever and what have you, this is what the city, you know, holds up as a unique thing to itself, which it is. But again, those very same elements would, you know, uh, 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 push the folks responsible for this culture and responsible for what even makes a DC interesting smooth out of the city into Prince George's County or wherever they may end up. You know what I mean? And so uh, uh, as it stands, it really seems like, you know, the solution to this as always has been that real organizing piece, that sort of grassroots kind of block by block um, orientation that seems to be, you know, uh, a DC's legacy in terms of how the organizing plays out. You know what I mean? So I feel like, you know, in this moment, when we look at the city, it seems like we should take, you know, this frustration that we uh, all feel rightfully and really turn that into that kind of push and into that kind of action that's going to develop that pressure that is really going to move the needle in the way that we need to, to use a phrase that Lorenzo used, because otherwise it ain't going to get moved, you know? That is absolutely correct. And and I I love that Lorenzo talks about you know, the importance of the young people and how they have to be the leaders in this because, you know, I speak for myself and, and, and my age cohort. It, it, it's time for us to, to step aside. Um, you know, I, I feel a lot of my work, it, it's very personal because there's nothing that, that you know, my organization addresses that, that didn't impact me personally, right? and I feel, honestly, I feel as if I had more opportunity to grow in this city, um, to be in this position than the young people do today. And, you know, I have a lot of shame around that. And I have a, a lot of guilt around that, too. Um, but the way I'm going for me personally, the way I'm going to channel that as best as I can is to open up this road and be able to do whatever I can to smooth the road out for the young people to take their position and lead us forward. Uh, Because the challenges that they face are different from the challenges that we faced in the 70s and the 80s and and 90s. Tough time. It was a tough time. But in a lot of ways, this this is a different type of tough. And I think the harm and and what's at stake is so acute I know we're going to rise and shine like diamonds and, 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 and do what's necessary to take care of as many as we can, as, one, as many as we must. And so I'm excited um, to, to, to do what I can to provide the resources and the support systems 
to make sure our young people know it is there for them to take. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're saying, Maurice, is precisely why I'm I'm uh, such a, a advocate for a, a multi generational struggle, and particularly in a situation in D.C. with which has its own, um, uh, I think, unique aspects to it. In the fact that we have people like you who you know remember what things were like during that period, as opposed to a young person in D.C. now who is uh, certainly dealing with honestly a lot of the same issues, but a lot of new ones too. And so the landscape is uh, definitely different. And I feel like that's just a great way to really uh, uh, flesh out and build up this movement and make it more sort of uh, a robust and inclusive of the folks who uh, uh, should be included. You know what I mean? And uh, Lorenzo, I'm sure, you know, you've seen sort of similar dynamics, you know, sort of play out and unfold as well, both in your experience as a native Washingtonian and as ANC, you know, hustling and struggling to do what you got to do just to uh, uh, support your folks. And I got to say, and I want folks to know that, you know, uh, you know, the, the ANCs, the, the people in a position like Lorenzo, when you when you talk about D.C. as a whole, politically, I, I see them as like an extremely mixed bag. Right. So everyone is not a fighting ANC like uh, Lorenzo, uh, uh, who has the kind of uh, analysis and politics that uh, spur him on to be a fighter. But even still having these different elements in place, I think is frankly crucial um, as we continue to see uh, uh, conditions unfold the way uh, that we have. And so in our last couple of minutes, Lorenzo, I- I'm wondering how you're seeing that aspect of things as well, as it seems that when it comes to young people, it feels that, you know, we can either try to, you know, help pull them, uh, you know, into this kind of movement piece and and giving them the proper platform and voice and and spotlight or you know we could run the risk of using you know yet another generation to some of these same contradictions that's very true um but i do have a lot of hope um uh i know the the kids around my way give me a lot of hope Uh, i remember one day uh, it was a few weeks ago uh we had i think it was six cop cars on my block responding to just a domestic issue at one of the neighbor's house. You know, an argument broke out. So six cop cars pulled up to mediate an argument. But while we're outside, I see a group of kids walking up the street bouncing a basketball. And, of course, they see me, they see the commissioner, they're like, hey, Commission, what are all these cops doing out here? I say, I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out myself, (laughs) you know? And immediately, immediately, they started interrogating the cops. Why are you here? What what purpose? Where do you come from? What school did you go to? Are you even from here? Were you bullied? Are you a bully? You know, (laughs) it was sort of like, and I just sat there with my grandmother, just watched. I'm like, wow, they really just dressed down all these cops and just really interrogated them. And as they went around the corner, one of the cops was like, oh, I'll be right back. He flew around the corner, then flew back. He was like, oh, I had to give them a piece of my mind. And I'm like, hey, yeah, yeah I just don't know. <laughs> These were a new breed of officers. So they, they didn't know the Deanwood of 2018 and what happened in 2018 on Sheriff Road when this neighborhood was challenged. Uh, this neighborhood fights back. We push back hard. Um, and it's in our history. We're self-sufficient. We're self-reliant. We, we do what we need to do to get get along. And we just don't deal with no mess. So 
So I am hopeful and I'm thankful and I'm grateful that we have a generation coming behind us that paid attention. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, I want to thank Maurice Cook and Anthony Lorenzo Green so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll see you tomorrow. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.